Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. We're changing gears into nutrition this week. Welcome, Charlotte Westwood. Thanks, Ferg. Thanks for the opportunity to come along and uh, catch up with you today. Fantastic. Great to have you along. And yeah, we obviously talk a fair bit about genetics on Head Shepherd, but a good opportunity today to talk about the bigger part of making money on a farm and that's how, how well you feed the animals and I often there's always that story about 90% of the breeding is what goes down their throat or whatever those different <laughs> different sayings are. We but, could argue about that ratio for a long time, that's right, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. But obviously both things are important and nutrition is the one that you can get right or wrong on an almost daily basis so genetics is a bit of a longer burn whereas yeah, nutrition you can you can kind of see the results almost immediately and, mm. and you have lots of opportunities throughout the year to, to get it right or wrong. So it's a, it is a, obviously a key part of livestock production. Indeed. Charlotte, I thought we might just start with your background, obviously a vet degree there at some point and then um, now at PGGW Seeds. But how, what, was the, what are the years between those two things? Oh, yeah, and there's, a, there's a few years. We won't say how many, but yeah. <laughs> Like most uh, New Zealand vets, started off at Massey um, quite a while ago. I did my vet degree there and uh, and actually started in the Waikato and practiced there. So you can imagine the main animal species there that doesn't quite fit in with your podcast topic. But uh, yeah, predominantly so love. Black and white. Yeah, bit. a few of those, a few of those. So um, was there for a number of years and then like so many uh, large animal vets sort of uh, wrecked my back, had some not so successful back surgery and I was kind of faced with the opportunity of going into small animal practice or working, uh, you know, for an industry, you know, drug company or something like that, or or indeed to, to do some post-grad work. So must have been something about the Australians. I decided to uh, go and do a PhD at the University of Sydney for four years, and that was looking at cattle reproduction as influenced sort of by the interaction between nutrition and genetic, genetic merit. So that and uh, typical broke PhD student while I was there I was approached by then rights and seeds and wondering if if I wanted to work for a seed company and I was a little bit outrageously what why would a seed company want a vet and nutritionist but anyway long story uh, yes I, I returned to New Zealand and, and worked for them for three years but uh, it was quite product focused you know I learned a lot about the species and the agronomics but just my passion was back on farm so I left there and Went consulting, farm consulting for eight years initially in New Zealand and then back to Australia for three years in southern New South Wales, northern Victoria. And uh, 
and then bounced back again. I've worn it out over the Tasman, came back again in 2009 and have been there ever since, initially with PGG Rights and Rural Supplies and then back into the seeds business in 2011. So, and there I have remained. Excellent. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get onto that PhD topic because that'll be interesting to, mm-hmm. to many. The uh, but we were both out at Cleardale early this week when when we're recording, which will be a bit earlier than when it's released. But uh, and you were talking there about intramuscular fat, or I guess we were talking about the genetics of it, and that's what often we pe- we think about marbling is is how well we. I guess typically it's a well-marbled wagyu or an Angus or something, and it's all about genetics. But obviously, nutrition is 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 a really key part of that. And some of what you were covering was about how kind of early you can stuff that up, and how important it is to get kind of a lot of things right to to actually get animals to marble. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, again, it's that interaction, interplay between genetics and. Uh, all aspects of management and management's not related um, entirely to nutrition. You know, we've got the sex effects and uh, age of the animal and, and, and their live weight <clears throat> as a percentage of mature weight as, uh, you know, at the time of slaughter, if, if they're a little bit younger. And so leaving those other management aspects alone and looking just at the aspects around nutrition, as you say, it's yes, nutrition's not quite a slow burn as, as genetics, but as far as setting animals up well to uh, lay down intramuscular fat, the bizarre thing is I think we think it's about, um, you know, weeks or maybe a couple of months or, or more before the animal uh, is processed. But bizarrely, like many aspects around meat quality, but also, you know, wool production and everything else, a lot of what is happening when the animal uh, reaches its finished stage for, for uh, processing has actually started while still inside mum's tum and... Uh, opportunity to improve IMF uh, in the finishing animal actually does start inside mum's tum and there's a term that's framed the marbling window it sounds a bit magical doesn't it inside mum's tum and it seems to be during that last trimester of pregnancy so in other words sort of day 180 190 onwards that the nutrition of mum in that last trimester can actually influence both the number but also the potential uh, for the uh, future growth of the fat cells, the dipocytes, within the muscle itself. So if mum has a hard time during uh, the last trimester of pregnancy, which, you know, unashamedly, we can all probably think up sometimes beef cows do work a little hard, um, heading into calving, particularly if it's been a long, hard winter, that if we work mum a little bit too hard, that may influence the decision around little stem cells, whether they're going to turn themselves later uh, into fat cells or muscle cells or um, fibre cells, you know, like collagen-producing cells. So there's a little bit of a drafting gate happening there. So if we don't get it right inside mum's tum, that can, in a small way, influence future uh, IMF deposition in the progeny. So that is not limited just inside mum's tum. There is some degree of, I don't know, what's the term, plasticity around continuing to encourage uh, more cells, uh, those stem cells, to end up as adipocytes or fat cells up to about 250 days of age. So puts a bit of a heat on us, I guess, to say, yes, beef cows have to do what they have to do and, and suck it up, I suppose, for other capital stock classes during winter, work a bit harder. But if we're looking for sincerely an end-to-end aspect around nutrition, 
and uh, IMF deposition, it does start inside mum's tum and during that, that critical first 250 days. Uh, opportunities, I guess, to have a look at that. In the grand scheme of things, it's not going to be an absolute go, no go, um, but it may impact if we're looking for all of those additive benefits from genetics nutrition management right through to the end product on the, the plate, I suppose, in front of the consumer when they want more IMF. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. All that any prenatal stuff is always intriguing, and then yeah, obviously it doesn't just stop at birth. So it's a yeah, it's a really uh, yeah one of those aspects of farming where you kind of got to have your eye on the ball. You do right the way through. Three hundred sixty-five days a and, year, and in yeah, fact, yeah. it's nothing we're going to do specifically for IMF, but it may be just for looking uh, improving cow condition. You know, at calving, keeping on top of that, and not letting us strip too much off in that last trimester. So usually, those sorts of things will go hand in hand. Similarly, you know, good condition and uh, feeding well for, for good lactational performance as well. You know, obviously with your genetics and, and the nutrition side of it and pre-grazing uh, and post-grazing pasture mass and all those things lead, lead to pre-weaning better live weights and a whole lot of other outcomes of interest. So I wouldn't suggest we, we tip a system on its head just to chase more IMF cells being deposited within, you know, the, the muscle bundles, but uh, kicks, a, kicks a few goals along the way, eh? Yeah, it's a lot of yeah, it's that key time through that. Yeah, if you manage them well, you get you get rewards in the as you say in in growth and, and other aspects. Yeah, the- yeah, overall business because I mean I, we don't want to look at IMF in isolation from other aspects around productivity and profitability for sure. No, and I guess equally we don't want to spend I don't know spend three or four grand more on a bull because of its IMF breeding value and then and then. Burn its progeny in yeah, through yeah, late exactly. pregnancy and, yeah. and early lactation. Yeah, so. yeah. Buy a, buy a Ferrari and put ninety one in it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which, uh, yeah, which is yeah, exactly what uh, what is probably happening out there a little bit with people thinking that genetics might be the silver bullet, or or that you don't have to worry about. There's probably we have both ends of the spectrum, I suppose. Yeah. We have people that think that genetics are the only op- option or only only thing that matters on um, the other other end of the spectrum, which means that nothing matters other than... Yeah, I think the, the, two, the two work together, and I think this is the key thing, that in terms of IMF predisposition, the genetics are certainly a strong attribute to part of it, like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, you know. If you've got half a jigsaw puzzle yeah. pieces missing, well, you're not going to get the complete picture in, in, in product. Yeah, and it seems if we are... Chasing a premium product, which is what high marbled beef is, or mm. beef and lamb, mm. the we are having to get all aspects of a production system right. You kind of don't get to you don't get to produce a premium product by accident. It's, it tends to be lots of little one percenters adding up to absolutely, to the whole. and that's certainly the case with IMF. You know, I mean, part of the key with IMF, I suppose, is that when certainly in that finishing phase, and notwithstanding you know these earlier days and inside mum's tum as well, that finishing phase. Part of the trick with IMF is that all the different fat depots inside that animal are laid down in a specific order. So as animals start to get older, they get through that leggy teenage phase, they start to lay fat down. It's in a specific order and it's laid down from internal fat, your visceral fat, you know, because that's the most important part. It's an energy source and stops the internal organs getting getting knocked around. Uh, then they'll move on to, well, I suppose it's back fat, but all subcut, subcutaneous fat around the body. When that's starting to lay down, then they'll move on to the to the fat that's laid down between the, the muscles. It's sort of there as a to help with the, the the mobility of muscles. That muscle groups slide over one another. A little bit of fat there, and then you know the the, the final stage of, of fattening is when the animal's older through maturity, typically, or getting close to its mature life weight, and then IMF gets laid down. So that's sort of the order 
that we go. So when we've got good levels of nutrition, we're heading in that direction. If things come unstuck, we hit drought, we uh, don't have a feed budget in place that's adequately conservative. When animals hit stress for any reason, so it may be a feed deficit, might be really rough um, weather, maybe just whatever it is, stress, even, even you know, um, transport, um, mixing mobs or whatever can be enough to go through a short period of negative energy balance and it starts to mobilise fat, but they'll, mo- they'll mobilise it out in the same order that it was laid down. So the IMF that you've lovingly sculpted through a combination of genetics and looked after, you know, the calf while it was inside mum's tum and everything like this, and then for the sake of a period of stress, uh, the IMF is the first to peel out. So if we see back fat like a loss of condition, heaven forbid, in our prime cattle, uh, the IMF's probably long gone and we're going to have to start that process again. Yeah, it's uh, pretty gutting to have that happen, particularly if it's something like the floods up north or whatever, where you had your animals ready to roll, and then yeah, and then out yeah. of your ha- out of your hands, you get you get uh, something dealt to you. Yeah, totally. I guess in a normal year when you have done everything, well, assuming you've done everything right and you've sort of got them, you've got those cells set up, the stem cells are all set up, good to go. What's uh, obviously grain feeding is the typical way for for getting yeah. IMF into into Pretty much mature animals, but in in New Zealand, there's a lot greater focus on on grass feeding. And so, what are the? Is there any combination of species that that produce a, a better VFA profile that result in IMF? Yeah, or? yeah, totally. Eh? Um, obviously, feed loading is not really the thing here, apart from from our one large one just out of Ashburton. Uh, so we do then look for more opportunities on a forage basis, as you say, and. I guess to choose the forage types, we go back to a little bit of the, the boring old biochemistry, which is, you know, we, we take from all of the overseas good work that shows that that the intramuscular fat cells, they, they love their glucose and to take that glucose and turn into fat versus the subcut fat, internal fat tends to prefer uh, making fat directly from some of the VFAs of volatile fatty acids that you mentioned inside the rumen, which is mainly acetate but also butyrate. And so when we feed a heap of good quality leafy green feed, what we're trying to do is to uh, potentially improve the total amount of volatile fatty acids. So we're getting more of a special one called propionate. Now propionate, unlike acetate and butyrate, is used to uh, to make blood glucose, so it converts it in the liver and makes more blood glucose. And we know from overseas work that the more blood glucose, the better, because those little IMF fat cells prefer glucose as the building blocks to make uh, fat, to deposit fat. So any diet uh, that we can increase blood glucose is good for us. So on the feedlotting side of it, we, I guess we cheat. We, we take our good grains, we take our... Uh, maize or corn grain, um, same thing, whatever part of the world your listeners are listening into. Uh, Australia, a lot of uh, sorghum, steam flake sorghum, to lift bl- glucose two ways. One is that when you feed a lot of grain, we get more of the VFA in the room and called propionate. That's one way we get more glucose, which supports IMF deposition. And then the other thing with our starch-containing grains is that we get some rumen bypass of that starch to the intestines, and that also drives up blood glucose. So... When we come to New Zealand pastures, those of you that haven't spent a lot of time in New Zealand, we're predominantly all temperate pastures here. So C3 grasses, legumes, but also increasingly we're seeing the use of more herbs, including chicory and plantain. And certainly in the lamb side of things, chicory 
mixed with clovers has formed an important part of feed bases for improving IMF, but also the accumulation of the polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are omega-3s, which are, give the big tick, you know, for a range of eating quality and human health reasons. But we are seeing improved IMF on these forages, specifically chicory, but increasingly from a farm system's desirability point of view, blending chicory in with uh, white and red clovers it makes a beautiful sward that uh, at the end of the summer growth period when chicory is growing really well, you can stitch grass into that and carry it through. So we're not entirely sure how these chicory-rich pastures as a forage is working, but it seems that chicory drives higher dry matter intake as a percentage of life weight. And so they're eating a whole lot more, which means a whole lot more VFAs, which coincidentally along for the ride comes more propionate. It's all a bit boring, this VFA stuff, but it's kind of cool because then we can start to say, is it all chicory? Might other foragers do this as well? But it seems more total VFAs, they eat more chicory, breaks down very fast in the rumen and squirts straight down the rest of the guts so they can eat more. Um, chicory doesn't change the ratios of the volatile fatty acids, so it doesn't seem to be driving more propionated expense of acetate, so that takes out that as a bit of a cunning idea of what might be happening, Ferg, but uh, doesn't seem to be the case. But certainly in the lamb space, uh, that is driving higher IMF, you know, for baselines in New Zealand, perhaps for 2 to 2.5%, you know, to upwards of 4%, I guess, is the target in the lamb space. The cattle space hasn't been looked at as well in New Zealand. I've actually been very privileged to work alongside uh, a colleague of mine, Holly Phillips, who's doing a part-time PhD. She's just in the home straight of finishing that, and she's looked at the effects of a range of different forages uh, on both IMF but also omega-3 accumulation in sheep and in cattle. So hopefully we'll have an answer for you as Holly uh, moves through her uh, essentially the, all the analysis and all that hard yards of PhDs they tend to get a we all, you know we've all done that I think that we all we'll drag our feet at the end a wee bit but yeah. I, I think Holly would be uh, awesome to uh, to have a, a catch up later this year because she's got some pretty exciting stuff looking at both lambs and cattle to see whether we can replicate the chicory effect uh, in cattle and we've also looked at whether we can replicate more IMF uh, as we expect in chicory on other things such as uh, brassicas we've looked at raffino brassica so it's some pretty cool stuff coming, but the yeah, jury's still out on that one. Yeah, cool. No, we'll definitely lock Holly in for an interview, and I very much feel the grind of finishing a PhD. I think <laughs> we've all I'll done that. Extended, extended that more than most. Even I reckon I had it gave that a fair, fair crack at stre- stretching out the last, <laughs> last straight. Yeah, Holly's at that stage um, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I ended up. Doing a three-year PhD in seven years, which was pretty good. It's, it's an outstanding you know. effort. Yeah, yeah. My three-week, three-year went to four years, so you win that prize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the um, I did. Uh, yeah. Anyway, when I was opening my files, they were two years since I <laughs> last checked. So, priceless, you know, priceless. Has I to be done. Never, never get a job when you before you finish. No, PhD. that's what's happened. So. Holly's changed jobs, so changed yeah, their role yeah. within the business. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, we digress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And hopefully it's maybe it's just us nerds, but that's really interesting how that's all how that's playing yeah, out. Yeah, it might be a bit nerdy, nerdy yeah. for listeners, but uh, I love it. If, yeah. if we don't if we don't capture a little bit of biochem, we can't hypothesize what different forages might look like and have, what they might do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, no, it's intriguing stuff. 
A quick interruption here to remind you of Head Shepherd Premium and our consulting services at NextGen Agri International. If you love this podcast and want to hear more of them, visit thehub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for Head Shepherd Premium and get an extra podcast each week. If you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximise the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextgenagri.com and we'll get in touch and see, see where that takes us. If we swing back to, now that we're on the PhD topic, if we swing back to your PhD on the sort of genetics v nutrition on reproduction, what were your sort of, what were the key take-homes and from from back in those days? Yeah, the, the key take-homes on that work, so this was uh, at University of Sydney out at Camden, we, we sourced a whole lot of, okay, dairy cows. Sorry, listeners probably haven't had a dairy word mentioned on your, on your podcast before, Ferg. But oh, we had, the, we had the odd one the odd, back in the, the early one, days. Keep you honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so we set up a what's called a Callengates feeding facility. So a lot of our North American listeners will probably be familiar with Callengates. And we essentially had a, a, a two-by-two crossover design on uh, feeding two different types of diets to two to high and low EBV dairy cows, and essentially the diet was based around a, uh, what we call isonitrogenous. That just means the same amount of nitrogen, same amount of crude protein, whatever you want to call it, uh, but differing in, in uh, the degradability of protein. So we set one up with a that contained a huge amount of urea, trying to replicate a lot of rumen degradable protein on temperate pastures that we deal with in both New Zealand but southeastern parts of Australia into Tassie. And I guess we hypothesised that in theory feeding the highly room degradable uh, protein diet to cows of higher genetic merit would put them at greatest risk of reproductive failure. But out of four years of my life, um, summed up in a very short period of time, (laughs) was that we established that actually uh, cattle of both high and low genetic merit did successfully get in calf uh, in the presence of all of that urea. Like we had some cows eating over 200 grams of urea a day once they were gradually adapted, which was a bit frightening. But uh, once the cows were successfully adapted, we found that cows could tolerate very high levels of rumen degradable protein with accompanying high levels of um, blood and milk urea, provided they were on a rising plane of nutrition heading towards mating. So our findings were that the protein itself didn't influence either uh, resumption of cyclicity after calving or conception success, provided they were in a calculated positive energy balance. So four years of my life was a bit tragic, really, but the long story was that <laughs> the high genetic merit cows weren't at greater risk of failure than low genetic merit cows. They seemed to adapt both at the level of the rumen and at the liver to coping with exposure to high levels of protein, but they must be gaining body condition. We found body condition was a greater predictor of uh, reproductive success in terms of change of body condition from calving through to mating. Uh, live weight dropped out on a multivariate analysis. So it seems to be, I, I love listening to your podcasts about body condition score requirements. That was certainly the same for us, but it just seems that any negativity around protein uh, and conception success is driven when cows are in a concurrent state of negative energy balance. So lovely take-homes that I, I believe are equally applicable to all of our ruminant species. Just feed them. Uh, and if you're going to <laughs> expose them to high levels of rumen degradable protein, expose them early, um, preferably pre-calving. So we're not. So this is where I suppose we look at overseas where perhaps cattle are housed all winter and then turned out in the spring. 
I think that sudden jump from a house diet, concentrate, conserve feeds onto beautiful, lush regrowth is probably going to cause concerns. But to replicate southeastern Australia and New Zealand, that chronic exposure to a lot of ruminant-degradable protein allows them to adapt to a certain degree, and we just feed them, and we should be all good. So I do, I do smile in the New Zealand dairy industry. There's a lot of people uh, diligently following their milk urea uh, results from their milk suppliers, uh, the, the milk processes, and worrying about milk urea. But I just sort of say, well, based on four years of my life, just feed them, just feed them, get them in a rise of planning yeah. nutrition. So there you go, four years yeah. of my life, Ferg. That could have been excellent. Shortened up a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> What about just a win every time you went out in the morning and they're still alive when you're feeding 200 grams of urea? Yeah, needless to say, don't don't try this at home, kids. Uh, this was gradually adapted, <laughs> starting three weeks pre-carving at yeah. very low rates and step through. Wouldn't recommend that, but certainly we had to push the boundaries. And those, those are rates yeah. that were consumed by individual cows that were consuming uh, 24 to 26 kilos of dry matter. We had, we had one cow doing over 70 litres. Total mixed ration um, cows that we borrowed from Corstaphine. People at no University of Sydney, and then we gave them back again at day one fifty of lactation. Yep. Okay, cool. A um, couple of things I want to cover. One is uh, you've, like me, spent a bit of time both sides of the ditch, so it'd be just interesting to contrast the farming systems and often get asked that question. So I thought I want to ask you that. <laughs> oh, but that's on, a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah, good question. So I guess all up, I had seven years. Um, you know, New South Wales predominantly, but into Northern Victoria. Probably the timing was a bit unfortunate on both of those occasions that I uh, dropped uh, into your um, part of the world mid-drought on both occasions. So I came from temperate farming New, Ze- New Zealand and had a hell of a shock, I'll be honest. I think when I arrived at the University of Sydney, someone had rung wanting to know if they could feed uh, shredded phone books uh, to beef cattle, <laughs> and, and we had to ponder that with the toxicity of the printer's ink and I don't think you get asked about that in New Zealand, but I think um, for, for any any younger listeners who want to get a stretch, um, I'd really recommend jumping out of New Zealand for a while because the diversity of environments in Australia, the types of forages, the types of feeding systems have really took the blinkers off my, my New Zealand sort of focused approach and have learnt to deal with drought feeding and the feeding of, of cattle and sheep obviously in manners that we'd never normally encounter in New Zealand. Uh, so yeah, it's fascinating just what byproducts and what things that the textbooks say you should not do this, that in fact with careful uh, ration design and, and management and animal management, we can actually get away with feeding crazy stuff that the textbooks say shouldn't work, including phone books. Not recommended yeah, on yeah, that one either, I mean, with toxicity risk. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to be a, if you want to be a rock star, be a, be a veterinary uh, nutritionist in a drought because everyone wants to know you in that. In yeah, that time, yeah, sure we went we went short of work. That's that's for sure. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. But I, again, for a New Zealander, you know, I, I didn't realise the amount of mental health stresses and everything on producers. So I learnt more than just nutrition. I just learnt a lot of a lot of how tough it can be through those years. And I think a lot of the times, a lot of our farm visits, we'd design a ration and then we just sit there and you know talk about. The, the pressures of the world and, and um, you know, it was, a, it was a tough old time for all of us, really. But, uh, but yeah, we certainly learned to get very creative with feeding. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, we you certainly see and hear it all over in Oz, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty pretty easy uh, here. But, you know, New Zealand's changing as well. And, I mean, you know, the Hawke's Bay drought 
that wasn't so long ago. Um, I spent quite a bit of time with, with veterinary colleagues of mine and other people just trying to help out, um, you know, feeding strategies uh, in, in the drought over here as well. So we're not immune to it as well here. And, and I do value the top the, what my farmers and my colleagues in Australia taught me around drought feeding um, and, and, and siling things that I never thought we could ensile. And, um, the, the feed quality of, you know, drought-affected cereals, for example, you know, failed canola crops and all these things that shouldn't be ensiled that actually can be ensiled quite successfully. So, yeah, I, it was a double-edged sword, really. It was, you know, it was pretty awesome, but, but yeah, in terms of learning capacity, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. One of the one of the things that I think about drought is it's actually easier on the animals than some of the experiences we have in particularly in uh, New Zealand but also in southern Australia where you get like we had last the end of last year where you sort of spring stays cold and wet and mm. worm challenges up it, it can be as hard on I mean everyone sort of anyone who lives in a I grew up in three hundred mil rainfall so I, yeah, yeah. I dreamt of irrigation and high mm, rainfall but mm. the but once you experience that you sort of at least in a drought, you can get to the animals and you can and you can feed them those rations and stuff. And mm-hmm. there's some there's some tough times in a in a cold spring too, aren't there? Yeah, very much so. And, and uh, obviously, we're more experienced in New Zealand to that. So it's funny how the trans Tasman thing works. But yeah, you you, you and um, Ginny at your recent podcast uh, from an eternal parasite point of view did a really good discussion. And I think anyone that's listening to this wants to go back and listen to that podcast because she had a lot of helpful discussions around internal parasite management and you appropriately identified that sometimes it's worse in wet years and and look both sides of a Tasman that's going to be a a real ongoing issue and I think we've got to really marry together the the nutritional side of things and how we do get through some of these um, the wetter years for guys that aren't used to dealing with parasites and looking at what do we do with crops what do we do with nutrition you know to keep the, the immunocompetency up on these animals so I think you know, the main thing is whether we're at the drought end or um, unusually wet conditions, notwithstanding the cyclone Gabriel that's, that's come through New Zealand earlier this year, that, you know, reach out to all manner of people, your vet and, and we nutrition types, we don't bite, you know, we're, we're always open to try and help in any way we can. Um, catching up with the likes of Ginny on the internal parasites, there's, there's a lot of people that are always willing and under very stressful situations to, to help out, no matter what... Uh, shirts we wear and who we work for so yeah yeah excellent if we sort of now turn our attention to the future what what is what are you up to on a day-to-day basis sort of looking what are you investigating at the moment or what are the what are the things that are coming down the line that you're seeing as exciting on a on a nutrition point oh, of view that's, that's a really good question i'm very fortunate in my role that i'm allowed to um, think think about try and well I try to think creatively, but to be honest, most of the the ideas that that we come up with come from good farmers asking hard questions. So something we're looking at at the moment is, uh, I suppose, is recognising here in New Zealand some of the pressures that are coming on to the dairy industry as far as uh, the un well, the not required dairy calves, whether that be heifers that aren't required, depending on the replacement rate that dairy farmers are running. As, as well as obviously all eyes are on the, the bobby calf industry, the calves that, that go for slaughter at, at a young age. And so we're trying to think ahead, working with a lot of other good people as well, of what we may end up doing in the future to provide the life worth living um, for the byproduct from the dairy industry with these calves 
particularly if in the immediate or, or short-term future we find that consumers no longer want bobby calves um, to to you know reach their, their their fate at a young age, but rather to give them a life. And on that basis, within New Zealand, we've got a lot of good finishing country for cattle, but that finishing country is in competition with changes in land use. It may be arable, it may be uh, areas that may not necessarily be grazed by ruminants, but you know, the future may see more cropping and, and whatnot on, on our easier country. So I'm looking with a level of curiosity at country that may not be irrigated, that may not be particularly summer safe, and looking for opportunities to bridge a feed gap to take those 100 kilo live weight springborn animals and feed them really well during their first summer of life. So we're increasing the chances of finishing them before their second winter. And if we rely 100% on pasture in a non-summer safe area, we can get some pretty grim pasture growth, uh, both in terms of amount and quality through that summer period. So something we're just um, having a toe in the water at the moment on is well, we're framed, I don't know what you call it, we've framed it up the nine-month brassica system. It's a little bit random and out there, but we've taken um, in North Canterbury some beautiful, admittedly beautifully, genetically beautiful, um, her- sorry, Hereford, not not Angus for all the black cattle lovers out there, but Hereford cattle over Frisian cows, and, and we welcome them uh, onto our farm in North Canterbury just before Christmas at, at about 110 kilos, and then after Christmas we put them onto a, uh, Raphno brassica, which is a kale reddish cross, and I've spent 90 days chewing their way through that crop along with some lucerne baleage. And at the end of March, then they've jumped on to uh, clean crop firefly kale, and they're going to. And they didn't have to transition; they just jumped from this this new pellet on straight yep. onto kale. So there's no transitioning rumen or behavioural. They just kept on kept on smiling and chewing their way through, and we're aiming to keep them on that right through to, to mid-September, so essentially nine months, coming up nine months on brassicas. So, so far they're doing really well. They're averaging 1 to 1.1 1. 1 kilograms of live weight gain per head per day. And if, if we can keep this on track and obviously things change in the depth of cold winter, they have a, a greater maintenance requirements to keep warm. But looking at um, taking those through, jump them back onto grass, see where we're at at Christmas time, whether they're appropriate for store or whether we're getting them close to finishing. If we're going to finish them, we'll jump them back onto brassicas until they're finished in autumn next year. So we're comparing this alongside a, a standard, I guess, grass-based system. We've, we've got a, a, a late-maturing um, tetraploid perennial ryegrass system where they're going to winter on grass right the way through. They'll never go on brassicas and just see where we end up. And just on that basis, we're taking crops that are more resilient and higher quality in more marginal areas of New Zealand than necessarily what grasses. So... That's probably our, our latest crazy thing that we're trying, but uh, on top of that, we're, we're doing all sorts of things. We've got some work we're doing with Fonterra, looking at the quality of milk coming off either chicory or brassica-based systems through the summer. So I'm, I'm really lucky, very spoiled. I, I have a very supportive range of colleagues and manager who, who takes my hair brain schemes and allows us to have a wee play, but we're trying to future, future-proof ourselves, Ferg, in terms of climate change or whatever else is potentially going on there. Yeah, excellent. The that discussion's just sparked a, another question, but the <laughs> um, I guess what I see on farms often is that someone's got a small crop of turnips and a crop of Italian, like a some Italian somewhere, mm. and then something else. And I mean, every time we shift animals onto a different species, we've got to, the room has got to change gears, and mm. and so we lose a bit of 
time slash production, and if we do that poorly, we lose quite a bit of time in production. Yeah, um, that's it. Is there a sort of minimum? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's probably I don't know how to ask the question, but it seems to me that you've got to be if you haven't got enough of any one type, it's almost not worth having any. As in, if they're on for they only get three weeks of grazing on it, and the first ten days are transitioning on, and the last ten days are transitioning off, you sort of don't. Is there any point? I suppose is. Yeah, Something it's, that it's, comes into my head a bit. I've never asked the question. It's a it's a really good question, and, and I'd agree. Is that any um, dramatic change in feed type? So that might be going from pasture to a forage brassica, whether that be a leafy turnip or whatever it is, uh, or indeed lucerne. You know, that's often talked about as well. If we if we bring single singles uh, lambs off the hills and throw them straight on lucerne, they can check for a while. Probably to do with that change in high levels of ruminant protein. Um, so, yes, it is very much about if you have a toe in the water for a different forage type to what you've previously used, there is sort of a, a scale-based effect that you do need to make it worthwhile. So if agronomically you're having a play with a forage type, you know, maybe you haven't done a leafy turnip or a, you haven't done lucerne before, there is an argument to have enough of it to allow animals, and it's usually, I suppose, you have your... I suppose if we put your lambs into A, B and C, you know, you've got your A's that are not far away from drafting out the gate and, and you've got your B's that kind of mids and then you've got your tails, your C's. Usually when you're changing forage type, I'd rather that uh, you split the allocation of your, those A, B's and C's across different forages. So your A's, you're going to keep them on something that's very similar to pasture. You might be able to sneak them on to oh, like a chicory red-white clover mix because you don't get much of a transition needed to jump from grass to that, depending on what the grass quality is like. So so you might keep your tops that are going to be drafted out in the next couple of weeks, keep them on pasture or something very similar to pasture. And then the more dissimilar a crop type is to grass, you probably put your, your slow-burn animals on because they're probably going to be with you for two or three months, worst case, if they're really small. And that way, if they need 10 or 14 days to adjust, you're kind of diluting that period where they might stand still or heaven forbid even lose a bit, you're diluting that over a longer period of time. So the roundabout way of answering it is if you've only if agronomically you're going to have a play with your rural retailer and, and just have a look at a crop type you haven't played with before, you might just want to you put your, your bottom lambs on that are going to be with you for a long time. So that transition period's diluted over that longer period of time. So it is about really categorizing your lambs and anything that needs a major transition, just bomb them onto the onto the uh, very high quality forages because they'll repay in the long term. But your tops won't. Yep. There's no point. Your tops are ready to go, and then they go backwards for ten days. It's a bit soul destroying. Yeah, which is probably counterintuitive because you want you know you've got that rocket fuel there, yeah. and you know that you've got these animals that are close, and so it's sort of you want to chuck them on there. But the reality is that's not the <laughs> not always option, the case. But, yeah, but it's but a little bit of yeah, planning. Yeah, and yeah. this is the fun thing about taking yeah. your crop types in your stock classes, and again the jigsaw puzzle. You just shuff, shuffle them around on the table and decide who's going to go where and for how long. And work backwards yeah, from there yeah. on the areas no, of crop that you need. Yeah, and I think well, yeah, if we do. Compare countries, which is always risky, except about rugby. We, but we'll leave the rugby the, out. Um, and, and, and the underarm. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> the underarm. That's right. Uh, underarm bowling. Yeah, yeah. Underarm. Pa- <laughs> yeah. 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 I get that. I get, get that, that a lot. I get. For, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Long time yeah, ago, but never yeah. forgotten. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but what, what I was going to say is the uh, yeah, Kiwis are, are amazing at, at herbage 
consumption and production and like, using every square inch of of a farm often and uh, yeah I think there's certainly certainly one thing as a if we can ever put people in boxes, I reckon that's um, yeah, Kiwi farmers are, are pretty professional at that. Yeah, but I think conversely, and, and this is the beauty of it, and you'd be the same working both sides of a Tasman. Is I still remain in awe of um, Australian producers, and I think the thing that struck me the most when I first went to Australia is attitude to risk. And the, here in New Zealand, and notwithstanding the climate showing some more vague stuff and changes happening, but. I was in all, you know, going to Australia and understanding how uh, open to risk mitigation Australian producers are. Like they'll have, I remember some of the farmers we worked with, um, you know, had like two two years of forage, you know, conserved yeah. for dairy cows. And I think a lot of New Zealand producers would be lucky to have two weeks. Um so I think I'm in awe of producers on both sides of the Tasman because there's strengths on both sides. And again, any any young listeners who are earlier in their agricultural careers, I think to jump to either sides of the ditch, I think New Zealand's got a good, good reputation, but so does Australia. And if there's an opportunity, it's to do time in both countries as well as internationally for sure. But it's amazing the spectrum of um, systems and people's attitude to to how to farm as well, so I've um, been very fortunate as as you have to to see both sides. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It's yeah, one of the, one of the great pleasures being able to cruise between each on a on a fairly regular basis. Absolutely. That's been a fantastic chat. Thanks, Charlotte. I reckon we're going to have lots of good feedback on this one. There's a lot of a lot of things that people can will have picked up and and uh, yeah, so it's been an awesome chat. Thanks very much for your time. We better wrap it up there. We've got. Um, we've uh, we've got to the forty minute mark, which is into the top ten percent, I think, probably for timing. It's so. definitely enough, Ferg. But <laughs> hey, look, hey, thanks very much for the opportunity to join you, and uh, yeah, and thanks for your awesome podcasts. I, I I know, along with other listeners, we all really enjoy your weekly um, guests that you bring on and, and have a yarn. So I appreciate being able to catch up with you today. Excellent, thanks, Charlotte. How do people find you if they want to get in touch? Ah, uh, yeah, you Google me. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, anyone, yeah, right. anyone that likes yeah. this nutrition stuff, um, like probably randomly five years ago uh, at work, I went on a, on a social media um, session for a couple of days, and a couple of us came away afterwards and said we should be doing the social media stuff. So that night, Friday night, with a couple of wines on board, we created the the room and room. Uh, Facebook group, which is a private group specifically around discussions to do with nutrition. So if anyone likes nutrition, just in, in if your Facebook's your thing, come and have a look there. But also like you, just um, had some podcasts up and running the last, well, it's coming up 12 months now, uh, also called the Room and Room Podcasts that you can find wherever you're listening to this um, with Head Shepherd. Perfect. And there's about 30 topics in there now at the time of recording this with you. A uh, lot of dairy stuff, but we've got sheep and beef stuff in there as well. So basics of nutrition, reproductive performance, flushing ewes. There's all sorts of things in there. And, um, yeah, jump on if podcasts are your thing, Room and Room podcasts. Awesome. Yeah, and I had a quick wander around the Room and Room. Uh, well, it wasn't Facebook. I don't know how I got onto it because I wasn't in the group. But anyway, the, um, I was having a look before. But, yeah, no, it's fantastic information. And, yeah, we'll put those links in the show notes. And, and I'm sure listeners will hopefully get a spike in listeners from from those that have listened here but yeah thanks very much for your time and we'll look forward to catching up soon awesome Ferg thanks keep up good work 
Thanks again to our mates in Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.